Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Foss Corporation, LLC. Welcome once again to the mansion on the hill, the house of strange, the palace of mystery. This is the home of Terry's mysterious moments. This is season five. We thank you for listening to the show. Hello and welcome back to Terry's Mysterious Moments. This week we've got uh, two animal stories. Uh, One's actually a beast animal and the other is an aquatic animal animal. So let's get right into it. The Beast of Whitehall. Whitehall is a sleepy New England town with charm galore, but it's surrounded by paranormal, if not abnormal, creatures. Champ is a Loch Ness monster of nearby Lake Champlain, and the Beast of Whitehall, or the Bear Road Incident, has been skulking around the Adirondack Mountains since settlers first arrived. In 1976, three teenage friends in upstate New York stumbled across a hairy seven-foot-tall monster that may or may not be the legendary Bigfoot. The encounter spurred sightings of the beast for many years to come, and many consider Whitehall, New York, the Bigfoot capital of the East Coast. Marty Paddock and Paul Gosselin were driving through the isolated and swampy woods near Whitehall, New York in late August of 1976 when they heard a chilling scream burst from the forest around them. The men stopped suddenly, thinking someone might be in distress. However, when they got out of the truck, all was quiet. The two men drove on a few more minutes before deciding to turn around and go back to that spot for another look. By this time, night had fallen. Among the gathered shadows, something large moved along the barbed wire fence flanking the road. To the men's recollection, it seemed to tower nearly seven or eight feet on two legs. Suddenly, the creature began slowly coming their way. Gosselin yelled at Paddock, urging him to floor the old truck. 
The men sped away into the night, leaving a wake of tire tracks and fumes. In short order, they arrived at the Whitehall police station where they were met with the sort of reticence to investigate one might expect. Undaunted, the men enlisted the aid of another friend and returned to the site. The trio didn't have long to wait before the creature again emerged in the distance. Now Gosselin and Paddock had another witness and so returned to the police station. As luck would have it, Paul Gosselin's brother, Officer Brian Gosselin, was on duty when the men returned to the station. This fraternal link, coupled with the fact that theirs was not the first such report, prompted the officer to take the men's story more seriously. His first inclination, as a rational man of the law, was to believe the men had either misidentified something more common or were victims of a prank. However, upon learning the location was outside Whitehall Police jurisdiction, Officer Gosselin sent the information along to the state police, who converged at the site and began scouring the locale for clues. One officer's tense words suddenly erupted from the crowd. What the hell was that? All eyes followed his toward the heart-stopping sight of a strange, bipedal form as it sauntered back into the dense brush. Larger than any local bear and walking on two legs, the creature vanished into the night. The men raced to where it stood only moments before. They were shocked to discover footprints that, despite being three times larger, were very similar to a man's. After hearing all this, Officer Gosselin decided to return the next night with state trooper and friend George Fox. The two scoured the area for some time before deciding on a stakeout approach. They sat in their respective vehicles with the lights out and the engines off. The night ticked by painfully slow, broken only by the rustle of trees and the sound of the occasional night bird. Officer Gosselin got out to stretch his legs when he heard heavy footfalls from the dark woods beyond. His partner's voice erupted from the CB radio in his car. Brian, I hear something. Gosselin heard something big moving through the trees and tall grass. He grabbed his 357 Magnum and took a position behind the door. Gosselin guessed the thing must have been more than 300 pounds. From head to toe, it was covered with a scraggly hair. Its eyes were large and seemed to be possessed of a ruddy glow in the glare of his lamp. Gosselin knew this was no bear. It moved like a man, but looked like an ape, and it was heading straight for him. Suddenly, Gosselin bathed the night with 200,000 candle power of light from his massively powerful spotlight. Ahead of him, perhaps 50 feet away, the lumbering giant suddenly halted, throwing its arms in front of its eyes and releasing a deafening scream. Gosselin cocked his gun but held his fire as State Trooper Fox came barreling down from the meadow beyond in his vehicle, screaming over the radio the whole time. Fox raced away into the night, leaving Gosselin to fend for himself. 
This may have given rise to the quote in reference to being chased by something deadly. I don't need to run fast. I just need to run faster than you. His eyes turned back to the creature. Somehow, though, the officer sensed the beast wasn't intent on harming him. It was frightened by the light. He couldn't bring himself to shoot it. He had a clear shot, but simply could not pull the trigger. A moment later, the creature was racing back toward the dark woods. In the spotlight, the officer could clearly see the animal's backbone and its buttocks caked in mud where it had sat in the earth. Gosselin was left with the impression that he himself was the intruder in the night, that he had transgressed on something else's turf. Then it was gone. Gosselin kept the light on for a bit longer as he sat in the mud thinking over what had just happened. He pondered if he should have shot the creature. There would at least be proof. He might have been hailed as a hero. Or not. If there weren't many of these creatures living in the world, he wouldn't have felt good about taking one down. He was certain of that. In the intervening time between Fox's abrupt departure and Gosselin arriving home to a phalanx of reporters, word had spread through the area like a wildfire. He ignored the media and locked himself inside his house. Later that afternoon, Officer Gosselin returned to the scene to discover many large footprints pressed deeply into the mud. There were no signs of claw marks and the stride was too enormous for a man to have hoaxed. In the evening papers, Gosselin was made out to be foolish through quotes he had never given. The townsfolk were equally unkind and the upper echelon in the department told officers to keep their mouths shut regarding anything they may have seen. But just because a town wants to disbelieve something doesn't make it go away. The next day, reports came in of something monstrous repeatedly crossing the nearby Pulteney River, which divides New York and Vermont. From its muddy banks, state police were able to cast one of the giant footprints. No conclusion could be reached. Shoddy investigation techniques, coupled with an unwillingness to pursue the truth too far, led to a case that simply dried up beneath the August sun. By September, the furor was subsiding and men like Officer Gosselin kept quiet about what transpired for decades thereafter. With such formidable trace evidence, though, multiple law enforcement eyewitnesses and a highly active site, why couldn't more have been learned from what happened in Whitehall, New York? There was no need for convenient explanations of transdimensional portals to dismiss why the beast remains elusive. This fiasco lies squarely on the shoulders of human failings. Officer Brian Gosselin remained haunted by the meeting with the creature and suffered years of ridicule as a police officer. His logs have mysteriously disappeared despite his painstaking recollections. First sightings occurred when people showed up in the area in the mid-1700s, and actually they happened before that. The national protected area around Whitehall is bigger than most other national parks, including Yellowstone. 
It also has the distinction of being a protected area. That is, they ban any hunting of Bigfoot. Of Bigfoot. He is a permanent resident, but hasn't cast any ballots that we know of. Most academics discourage the idea of a large primate living secretly in Whitehall, even today. Alas, too, many of the key witnesses from the 1970s have amazingly already passed away. One witness, Dan Gordon, gave an extraordinary interview to the Monster Quest program and died in 2016, while Paul Gosselin died in 2015. It is hard to believe how fast time passes. Even Bigfoot's grandchildren must now be secretly roaming the woods outside of Whitehall. But that's assuming that Bigfoots have a human-like lifespan. The sightings of a beast in the area of upstate northeast New York State have been around for a very long time, reaching from the pre-European inhabitation by early tribes. Stories of rock apes, so-called because they had a tendency to throw rocks, perhaps trying to run off what they considered to be interlopers or threats, were told by the indigenous tribes and were part of their tribal histories. The question remains, was or is this a Bigfoot? Or is it something else? Is it a cryptid or is it a dream creature? Shark. The Jersey Shore attacks of 1916 were a series of shark attacks along the coast of New Jersey between July 1st and July 12th of 1916, in which four people were killed and one injured. The incidents occurred during a deadly summer heat wave and polio epidemic in the United States that drove thousands of people to the seaside resorts of the Jersey Shore. Since 1916, scholars have debated which shark species was responsible and the number of animals involved, with the great white shark and the bull shark most frequently cited. Personal and national reaction to the fatalities involved a wave of panic that led to shark hunts aimed at eradicating the population of man-eating sharks and protecting the economies of New Jersey's seaside communities. Resort towns enclosed their public beaches with steel nets to protect swimmers. Scientific knowledge about sharks before 1916 was based on conjecture and speculation. The attacks forced ichthyologists, that's fish scientists, to reassess common beliefs about the abilities of sharks and the nature of shark attacks. The Jersey Shore attacks immediately entered into American popular culture, where sharks became caricatures in editorial cartoons representing danger. Between July 1st and 12th of 1916, five people were attacked along the coast of New Jersey by sharks. Only one of the victims survived. The first major attack occurred on Saturday, July 1st at Beach Haven a resort town established on Long Beach Island off the southern coast of New Jersey. Charles Epting Van Sant, 28, of Philadelphia, was on vacation at the Ingleside Hotel with his family. Before dinner, 
Van Sant decided to take a quick swim in the Atlantic with a Chesapeake Bay retriever that was playing on the beach. Shortly after entering the water, Van Sant began shouting. Bathers believed he was calling to the dog, but a shark was actually biting his legs. He was rescued by lifeguard Alexander Ott and bystander Sheridan Taylor, who claimed the shark followed him to shore as they pulled the bleeding Van Sant from the water. Van Sant's left thigh was stripped of its flesh. He bled to death on the manager's desk of the Ingleside Hotel at 6.45 p.m. Despite the Van Sant attack, beaches along the Jersey Shore remained open. Sightings of large sharks swimming off the coast of New Jersey were reported by sea captains entering the ports of Newark and New York City, but were dismissed. The second major attack occurred on Thursday, July 6, 1916, at the resort town of Spring Lake, New Jersey, 45 miles north of Beach Haven. The victim was Charles Bruder, 27, a Swiss bell captain at the Essex and Sussex Hotel. Bruder was attacked while swimming 130 yards from shore. A shark bit him in the abdomen and severed his legs. Bruder's blood turned the water red. After hearing screams, a woman notified two lifeguards that a canoe with a red hull had capsized and was floating just at the water's surface. Lifeguards Chris Anderson and George White rode to Bruder in a lifeboat and realized he had been bitten by a shark. They pulled him from the water, but he bled to death on the way to shore. According to the New York Times, women were panic-stricken and fainted as Bruder's mutilated body was brought ashore. Guests and workers at the Essex and Sussex and neighboring hotels raised money for Bruder's mother in Switzerland. The next two major attacks took place in Matawan Creek near the town of Keyport on Wednesday, July 12th. Located 30 miles north of Spring Lake and inland of Raritan Bay, Matawan resembled a Midwestern town rather than an Atlantic beach resort. Matawan's location made it an unlikely site for interactions between sharks and humans. When Thomas Cottrell, a sea captain and Matawan resident, spotted an eight-foot-long shark in the creek, the town dismissed him. Around 2 p.m., a group of local boys, including young Lester Stillwell, aged 11, were playing in the creek together. One of the boys had brought along his pet dog, which was swimming with them as well. At an area called Wyckoff Dock, they saw what appeared to be an old, black, leather-beaten board or a weathered log. A dorsal fin appeared in the water and the boys realized it was a shark. But before Stillwell could climb from the creek, the shark pulled him underwater. The boys ran to town for help and several men, including local businessman Watson Stanley Fisher, 24, came to investigate. Fisher and the others dived into the creek to find Stillwell, believing him to have suffered a seizure. After locating the boy's body and attempting to return to shore, Fisher was also bitten by the shark in front of the townspeople, losing Stillwell in the process. His right thigh was severely injured and he bled to death 
at Monmouth Memorial Hospital in Long Branch at 5.30 p.m. Stillwell's body was recovered 150 feet upstream from the Wyckoff Dock on July 12th. The fifth and final victim, Joseph Dunn of New York City, was attacked a half mile from the Wyckoff Dock nearly 30 minutes after the fatal attacks on Stillwell and Fisher. The shark bit his left leg, but Dunn was rescued by his brother and friend after a vicious tug-of-war battle with the shark. Joseph Dunn was taken to St. Peter's University Hospital in New Brunswick. He recovered from the bite and he was released on September 15th of 1916. Just when you thought it was safe to go back in the theater. 1974, Peter Benchley published Jaws, a novel about a rogue great white shark that terrorizes the fictional Long Island coastal community of Amity. Chief of Police Martin Brody, biologist Matt Hooper, and fisherman Quint hunt the shark after it kills four people. The novel was adapted as the film Jaws by Steven Spielberg in 1975. Spielberg's film makes reference to the events of 1916. Brody and Hooper urge Amity's Mayor Vaughn to close the beaches on the 4th of July after the deaths of two swimmers and a fisherman. Hooper explains to the mayor, look, the situation is that apparently a great white shark has staked a claim in the waters off Amity Island, and he's going to continue to feed there as long as there's food in the water, Brody adds, and there's no limit to what he's going to do. I mean, we've already had three incidents, two people killed inside a week, and it's going to happen again. It happened before. The Jersey Beach, 1916. Five people chewed up on the surf. Richard Ellis, Richard Fernicola, and Michael Capuzzo all suggest that the 1916 Jersey Shore attacks, Coppelson's rogue shark theory, and the exploits of New York fisherman Frank Mundus inspired Benchley. The increased presence of humans in the water proved a factor in the attacks. As a worldwide human population continues to rise year after year, so does interest in aquatic recreation. The number of shark attacks in any given year or region is highly influenced by the number of people entering the water. However, the likelihood that one shark was involved is contested. Scientists such as Victor M. Coppelson and Gene Butler relying on evidence presented by Lucas and Murphy in 1916, assert that a single shark was responsible. On the other hand, Richard Fernicola notes that 1916 was a shark year, as fishermen and captains were reporting hundreds of sharks swimming in the mid-Atlantic region of the United States. Ellis remarks that trying to make the facts as we know them conform to the rogue shark theory is stretching sensationalism and credibility beyond reasonable limits. He admits, the evidence is long gone and we will never really know if it was one shark or several, one species or another that was responsible. Scientists using common sense, wow. In 2011, further study was conducted in the Smithsonian Channel's The Real Story, Jaws. 
The documentary takes a closer look at the series of events from different perspectives. It was demonstrated in the Matawan Creek incidents, for example, that the full moon of the lunar cycle, which would have coincided with the attacks, would have raised the salinity in the water by more than double just a few hours before high tide. This would support the theory that a great white could have been responsible. Other evidence, such as Joseph Dunn's injury, suggests the type of bite was more likely made by a bull shark as opposed to a great white, leading some to believe more than one shark was likely involved in the five incidents. So there may be something to blaming the full moon for maniacal behavior. Does nature sometimes rise against us residents of planet Earth? It would seem so. Just another Earth mystery we may never explain. Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks for being along for the ride. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast. Aaron reads listener stories, mostly ghost stories, sometimes UFOs, sometimes cryptids. On Tuesday, Aaron Frail brings you Aaron's Horror Show, different things that he's written. He reviews movies, books, things like that. On Wednesday, it's me, Terry from Texas, with Terry's Mysterious Moments, where we talk about just about anything there is to talk about. Aaron has instituted a new area called Entertaining Short Films. That's exactly what they are. They're just short stories, nothing in particular, no particular genre, just entertaining. Remember that you can go to your app store, whether you have Apple or Android, download the RPA app, which is a black square with a blue eye in the middle of it. Download that to the device that you listen to the program on. Install it, and when you open that up, you can go straight to the Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, and its network. So all the all the stories that are involved with RPA are there, so you don't have to go hunting for them. If you want to contact me at Terry's Mysterious Moments, you can do that on the Facebook page, and it's called Terry's Mysterious Moments, or you can email me at Terry's Mysterious Moments at gmail.com. Contact me if you want to. Let's talk about some things. That's about it. We'll be back again. Listen to the other shows. Have a good week, everybody.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.